Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Elizabeth Carney. I'm the chair of the Business and Leadership Forum and your host for today's program, which is entitled Discover, Recover, Uncover, Women's New Roles in the Workplace. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our distinguished speakers, Joanne Begshaw, in conversation with Kelly McElhaney. Joanne is a professor of psychology and women's studies at Montgomery College, a columnist at the Third Wave on Psychology Today, and author The Feminist Handbook, which will be available to purchase and get signed later on tonight. Kelly McElhaney is a founder and executive director of the Center for Equity, Gender, and Leadership, and a faculty member at the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley. Here to have a stimulating dialogue, we welcome this program. Hello. Hi. We just met tonight, but we had this great phone conversation, and it feels, as women do, like I already know her and have (laughs) known her and... You know, but I'm super excited to be here. She has my dream job. I'm a professor. She gets to deal with all the really cool stuff um, as a therapist. Not that I have ever been to a therapist, but (laughs) (laughs) I would love for you just to start out. So I have the book. I've read the book. The books are in the back. What made you write a book? Sure. So I um, have been a therapist for 20 years. And what I've learned from working with women is that women um, from all races and classes throughout different developmental stages in our lives constantly ask, what is wrong with me? And it shows up in the therapy session constantly. And so this book is a way to actually provide uh, women and female-identified people with tools to um, dismantle the patriarchy in our own minds because Women are coming to therapy and overrepresented in mental health issues like PTSD, depression, anxiety, eating disorders. And all of these issues are directly related to the constant um, drip, drip, drip of everyday sexism. And so this book is really an offering of like your own personal toolkit of uh, how to handle sexism. Are you saying a man never has come to therapy and said, what's wrong with me? That's a great question. Um, <laughs> it, wasn't on the, it wasn't on the script. She knows I'm not very scripted. <laughs> uh, very rarely. Very, very rarely. Huh. Mm-hmm. Not in the way that it shows up for women. Constantly. And it's, it's a constant reminder. There's nothing wrong with you. Which seems um, uh, almost backwards to go to, you need to go to a therapist to find out that you don't need a diagnosis, right? That there really is nothing wrong with right. you. And, and it's, uh, it shows up in so many ways um, for young women who are dating and wondering why I haven't found the right one instead of what's wrong with um, the sea of, of available people. It's what's wrong with me yeah. to um, new mothers and mothers of any, every age, you know, what's wrong with me that I can't handle uh, work-life balance. What's wrong with me that for new mothers, um, what's wrong with me that I can't go back to work, take care of my baby, do most of the housework, take care of my husband and my family. Why am I so tired? What's wrong with me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, over time, working with um, 
women with sexual assault histories, especially after the Brett Kavanaugh hearing. Mm -hmm. What's wrong with me that this bothers me so much? What's wrong with me that I'm still experiencing PTSD? What's wrong with me that I don't want to tell anyone about it? Mm -hmm. Um, Domestic violence victims who are diagnosed with depression and wondering what's wrong with me that I'm diagnosed with depression? Which is, if you think about it, being depressed, living in an abusive marriage is adaptive, right? You wouldn't be joyful in that situation. Do you, do you have a sense of how young we are when we start asking that question? Um, adolescence. And that's where it really... Um, I think I really do because of so many pressures. Yeah. What, you know, what's wrong with me that... If you think about teenage girls, um, you know, constantly compare, comparing mm. themselves to other girls, and especially on social media. Thing, yeah. You know, why doesn't my body look like that? Why can't I maintain this weight? Why um, do I have acne? Yeah. Oh, that's a whole other topic we can go <laughs> on to. So let's just start with how do you define, because it's in your title, feminism? Yes. So um, one, there's a lot of myths about feminism, right? And the most prevalent myth is that feminism is about women being equal to men. But feminism isn't about women being equal to men. If it was, which men would we be equal to? Not all men have access to the same level of power and privilege. So feminism is a movement to end sexism, but also to dismantle interlocking systems of oppression. So we can't separate feminism from white supremacy, from classism, from ableism, from homophobia, etc., All of these systems have to be dismantled because when you think about a patriarchal system, we're really talking about who is, um, what is the patriarchy, right? So it's, it's typically white heterosexual males. Mm -hmm. So that is the top of the hierarchy who are educated and middle-aged. And so, um, the patriarchal system is a hierarchy that we have to work to dismantle. I really like the way you say that there's even patriarchy or an ism within feminism when we talked right. about this in terms of it was just a blindingly new discovery for me maybe three years ago that we've been talking about feminism from a white from a white perspective yes perspective so yes. can you talk a little bit about that mine was a painful realization yeah when I was complicit it is a painful realization because as white women and who are feminists um we have um had a, a larger voice in the movement. And the problem is when, um, as a white woman, what white feminists have done is centered the movement around their own needs, right? And their own rights. And so therefore, what that means is we're trying to be equal to the white men in our lives, our husbands, our uh, fathers, brothers, etc. Um, but when we do that, we leave behind all other groups, yeah. right? So um, that's a, a, a large mistake in, in feminism. Yeah. I gave a talk earlier today on pay gap and I get so frustrated because you, the headline is 80 cents or I don't know, the highest is oh, 80.5 right. 80. cents. Thanks mm-hmm. for the half penny. Um, but that's the white woman. Uh, in fact, African-American women are at 64 cents and Correct. Latina 54 to 56 cents. So I love that we talked about that and that you brought that out here. Um, I don't know which way to go, Weinstein or Warren. <laughs> Let's go Weinstein first. Sure. Sure. Um, because Warren is fresher um, <laughs> next day, the day after. But what do you think, what, ha- what happened? What do you think is, have we advanced because of the outcome of that trial? What do you think? 
So I, I think it's complicated. I mean, first of all, I'm really glad that he was convicted. And I think we probably all are, right? Um, but we have to sort of back up and take a, a look um, at what it took for Weinstein to be convicted. So um, he had been abusing women. He was a predator for many, many years. And it took 100 women to tell their stories, six brave women to show up in court, Pulitzer Prize journalists to write about him, you know, in, in order for him to finally be convicted. That's a lot of resources and a lot of power. And it's wonderful, finally, a powerful man has been, you know, convicted of rape. Great. But moving forward, you know, it's not enough. It's a good start. It's a good start to keep people talking and telling their stories. Um, but again, these, are, these stories, in this case, are about privileged women. Mm. So Weinstein's conviction is great, but I actually want to back up and talk a little bit about me too and how it originated mm -hmm. right so the me too movement was founded by a black activist by the name of tarana burke in 2006 and she's been spending her whole career um, fighting for and working for protecting black girls and women from sexual assault with very little attention no one knew about her and then in 2017 Alyssa milano tweeted Me Too in response to Weinstein. Mm -hmm. And that tweet went viral. And um, lots of women came forward with their stories. And then it came out about Tarana Burke. So because of Al Alyssa Milano's platform, we now learned about Tarana Burke. Right. But Tarana Burke's work, uh, the Me Too uh, her Me Too movement, was really about um, providing resources for, for vulnerable girls. Um, and black girls and women are highly vulnerable to rape and sexual assault. Their uh, rates are higher, not as high as indigenous women, um, which also complicates it, right? So we always want to think about who's the marginalized group in any issue and try to protect them. So that's the, that's the core of Toronto Burke's work is to provide resources um, for um, vulnerable populations, right? So, but it sort of got co-opted into the Weinstein case. And um, so we, we don't want to forget these really vulnerable women and that what Weinstein's case does is, uh, and, and moving forward is uh, giving attention to more privileged women, but there are so many other women who don't have access to these resources, right? Um, there's a documentary called rape on the night shift. So these are women who are undocumented and who are immigrants who are cleaning office, office buildings at night. And they have very high rates of rape and sexual assault. So um, who's protecting them? Mm -hmm. So I, I just want to say it's great about Weinstein. This is a, a step forward, um, but we're just at a certain place. We have to keep moving and we have to keep remembering to protect the most vulnerable and marginalized groups. Yeah. I always... I probably stole this from somebody, but I don't remember, so it's mine. We're only as equal as the least equal amongst mm -hmm. us. And I think a lot about, particularly around transgender, who also have Absolutely, yep. Uh, black, black trans females. Yeah. So if we, if we as feminists um, focus our work on protecting the most marginalized people, mm. everyone is safe. If you think about a world where black girls, black trans females, and indigenous women are safe, mm -hmm. That's a world where all, we're all safe. But if we're only focused on our own safety, then we leave behind all these other girls and no one's protecting them. 
Will we, will we see that world? If we keep moving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Has it slowed down? Do you think um, Slowed down? Well, you know, it felt like that at the Brett Kavanaugh hearing. Yeah. I think that was really devastating. So I think after that, we really did need to see Weinstein convicted um, because, you know, having a, that much, you know, power being held mm-hmm. accountable is super important. But we have to keep moving. And I, I really want to encourage women to tell their stories, mm-hmm. tell your, you know, and if you've never told your story to anyone, don't start with unsupportive people. It's a therapist in me. Um, <laughs> <Animal>. um, <laughs> um, but certainly tell uh, people that are going to be supportive and then, you know, move on from there. Mm-hmm. Um, and also for men to uh, be bystanders, right, to, to stand up for women. So, um, most men are not rapists. The majority of men are not rapists. We have high rates of rape and sexual assault because men have not been held accountable. But what we have are a lot of men who can speak out. And that's what we need you to do. Again, so much in there at Cal, they do training specifically to men. And I don't know that this is entirely fair, but in the Greek system, but they train men to watch their drunk fraternity brothers. Okay. Good. When they're, and it's a, it's a really, I mean, I don't think they should just be training fraternity. I think it's. Well, all, all, yes, yeah, all I mean, of them. You know, but that's um, a great way yeah. that they are holding themselves accountable. Most yeah. of the rape prevention that we see is geared towards women. Yeah. Right. And, and, and which is subtly blaming. Right. If we do all these things, if we carry our keys in our hand, if we dress a certain way, if we have a buddy, you know, then we're going to be safe. But, yeah. you know, if, if we don't do all these things and something happens, well, then it's your fault. But I like that. Which was good out of the Weinstein case, right? Because it started to slightly open up the thought that you can be acquainted and still be. I know. And also um, what was really great is that uh, uh, some of the the victims that testified had subsequent relationships with him. Mm -hmm. And that's actually really common Mm -hmm. Um, for for many rape victims. It's a way of sort of like undoing like like no rape victim that I've ever worked with wanted to admit that it was rape. That's a, a common denial. So having a, a subsequent relationship kind of, it's, it's a way that they're trying to deny reality. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and that's never worked in these cases before. So it worked this time. Yeah. And hopefully more. And with, with your comment on race, it, it took 100 women for Weinstein. It only took 50 for Bill Cosby. So did race play oh, perhaps. into yeah. that? Like that is kind of just struck me when you yes, said that. Yes, absolutely. And I hadn't actually put that I together until you said that. So what's, it's, a, it's an easy question. What's left to change? <laughs> uh, the culture, right? Yeah. So, um, and that's up to us. And um, what, you know, what I, I hear about, like, what programs and policies uh, can we put in place? And, and I think that that's important. But, but also, we need to think about what kind of world do we want to live in? And how are we going to get there? So, um, and this is actually, you know, in the book, just uh, sort of untangling our own assumptions about rape and sexual assault mm-hmm. and um, who victims are and what happens. Uh, you know, w- women do it too. In fact, women jurors uh, make the, the worst jurors in a rape case. Mm-hmm. We're more likely to not believe a woman or to blame her. Um, so, you know, when we, and that is part of patriarchy, right? So pa- patriarchy is not about Definitely. men. Yeah. But uh, it's a system. So, you know, we, we all need to, to um, look at our own biases 
and our own blaming and our own judgment and find ways to really listen and support and believe women. How do you teach people that they're biased? Great question. I, I think it wasn't I, on the script. Yeah. You? I'm so sorry. You can't ask that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You're a therapist. You can answer anything. <laughs> oh boy. No, actually what therapists do is, is answer questions with questions. I know. <laughs> what do you mean by bias? <laughs> <laughs> Professors do the same thing. Well, what do you mean by bias? <laughs> exactly. Um, how do you teach people about biases? Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I did that recently um, in a workshop with uh, people working on embodied white privilege, and we did it through movement. I, I think our, our biases are, are so deeply held and unconscious that they're in our bodies, yeah. you know, and so noticing your own feelings and, uh, and how you respond. And um, in that case, we were talking about what superiority feels like in your body. And if you really think about that, it's like really upward displacement and um, and, and sort of dismantling that from, from your own body. But it's, you know, it's in your feelings. But you have to, people need to be motivated to do that, yeah. right? I was speaking about bias earlier to 200 investment bankers, and I said there's only two proved ways to de-bias people, meditation, and their eyes were like, <laughs> is she really going to make us meditate right now? And then spending as much time as possible like with people against whom you hold biases. So, but you're slow thinking and getting into your body and just feeling what it feels like. But let's get back to this. I really like your talk about active bystander, bystanders. People, I think, are really want to say, I'm an ally. Yeah, I'm an ally. I'm an ally. Yeah. What, but what does that, does that mean? mean? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when was the last active ally move? Right. So how do you talk about more? Because we're all allies. We're all yeah. bystanders. Yeah. Standers, but how do we become active? So I think the first thing is, you know, when you notice um, microaggressions or sexist behaviors mm-hmm. to speak up about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and also, I just want to say as a caveat, we talk about being a bystander is safety first. <laughs> um, good point. So just uh, keeping that in mind. But um, let's say, you know, if we are in a workplace situation and you hear someone say something uh, sexist to, to speak up and speak out about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so recently, um, one of my coworkers told me a story where another coworker had said something supremely offensive about a female employee. Um, and it was a little bit of a rape joke. And the coworker, the male coworker who told me um, was uncomfortable with it. He knew it was sexist. He wrote it away like that was terrible. But he didn't say anything. And so I did say to him, I was like, you know, can you do me a favor? The next time that you hear a coworker make a statement like that, Please say, you know, that's not, that's not cool, or, or what, what is that? You know, just yeah. speak up and speak out about it. That is being a bystander. That's letting it be known that this is, this is not okay, okay. right? Um, or, you know, when you checking in with people, when you hear, whether it's sexist, racist, homophobic jokes, comments, microaggressions, and microaggressions are subtle forms of discrimination that sort of leak out in moments. Uh, that's how your biases show up, you know, telling women to smile. <laughs> um, no woman likes that. Um, <laughs> it's better than saying calm down. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's <laughs> at <laughs> so that time of the month, you know, those sorts of things. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, to, to speak up about that, that that's, you know, just to say something and not always leaving it for the person who was the one receiving the comment right. to have to speak up. And yet everybody in this room has probably had one, if not a hundred times in which we didn't speak up. Oh, yeah. So the shame, I always, when I 
have my students write about, tell me about a time you didn't speak up. They have all this guilt and shame. Yes. And also we've all uh, said microaggressions, right? It's common. Yeah. So, um, and I think that that diffuses the shame when we normalize it. Yeah. We talked about, and we both are professors, we have similar lived experiences about a man in your class, yes. a male student, and the before and after effect. Right. So, and we were talking about um, changing culture and mm-hmm. workplace culture, right? And there's um, a social psychological theory we talk about one bad apple. And if you think about it, we all sort of know someone, whether you know it's in your work or other situation, where that person... Um, you know, is acting in inappropriate ways and maybe no one says anything. And the example that I was sharing with Kelly was actually a male student in, my, in one of my classes who, um, and because I'm a psychology professor, most of my students are female. So there's usually like maybe a few guys in the class. And so there are four or five guys sitting in the corner together. And one of them was uh, really uncomfortable being a student. I think he was... Um, afraid to express his vulnerability as a student, didn't think it was cool to be academic or smart. So he would spend most of the time on the phone, talk while I'm talking, talk to the other male students. Um, And I, by the way, hate to be the phone police, uh, but I did go up to him during a film clip and say, hey, could you know, would you mind just putting the phone away? It'd be really great. Um, and he did. And, uh, but he was disruptive and kind of uh, slightly defiant. So one, he did drop, he withdraw from the, withdrew from the class. The next class when he didn't show up, the entire environment of the class changed. The other guys in the class were relaxed, engaged, and present. They weren't like sucked into his negative energy. Mm. I was relaxed. Everyone else was relaxed, right? Um, so wouldn't it be, I don't know what would have happened if he stayed, but if we took this sort of scenario and put it in a workplace environment, you know, if, that, if there's that one person who is doing these really, you know, sexist or discriminatory things, wouldn't it be great if several people called him out on it instead of just letting it slide? Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen him again? Uh, not so far. <laughs> what if I'll sign up next semester? Probably. Uh-huh. <laughs> I want to get to the book because I, I you know, I want to, it's so action oriented and self-reflective and not just noodling on what your thoughts are, but what are you going to actually do about it? But right. How do you hope everybody in this room, as well as everybody who has your book interacts with it? Like what's your dream for this book? My dream for this book is for the, it's for when you read it, um, that you do the, the, the activities, Mm -hmm. any way that you do it, like whether you're actually writing them down or reflecting on them. Um, And that, that frees up all of this, what is wrong with me energy? Because if you think about it, if, if we took away all that, all the ways that, that, uh, that women um, try to adapt into a male dominated culture, um, dieting, um, changing our behavior, um, you know, all of the way, all, if we took all of those ways away, think about all the energy that you would have. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I'd like us to take that energy and then become active, become involved in our communities. You know, so ideally, if you choose, uh, chose one issue that was important to you and researched it and got involved in your community um, to cre- create change and create the world environment that we want to live in, 
that's the action plan. Um, but, you know, to start it off, you're probably thinking, well, I don't have any time for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and your action plan can, can be anything. I mean, for, for some people, really, truly giving money is the time that you have. But that's a, money is a great resource. Um, so, but, but in order to free up that energy of stop trying to fix ourselves. Do men, I mean, I, I worry don't accuse me of being a white male apologist because I've already been accused of it, so it's okay. I worry about men right now because yeah. what I hear anecdotally is that they're, they're feeling attacked, they're feeling blamed, but how that plays out in the workplace is I'm not going to take meetings with women, I'm not going to take them out to lunch, I'm not going to take them out for a drink after work, and we all know that business goes down. I know. At the bar after work or at the Giants game or actually the Raider. Well, never they're gone. Anyway. (laughs) So what do you, how do you talk about men? (laughs) Um, So, you know, I'm going to bring it back to actually working with men Mm -hmm. in in counseling. Mm -hmm. And underneath all the sexist behavior is a lot of vulnerability. And... I think that what, what really would help men is to get in touch with their feelings and vulnerability. You know, how to do that in the workplace, it's kind of tricky, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> not going to say to your male colleague, hey, what's your vulnerability? Let's <laughs> go <laughs> um, have a vulnerable drink. Yeah, dude. but, you know, I, I think they, they, they actually are feeling a vo- little vulnerable now because um, so the, the complaints of I don't know how to be right now. Okay, yeah. good. What's wrong with that? You know, I, I think if, if the behavior is more um, negative impact on women, that's the problem. Yeah. But, but really, if you think about what are women asking, we're saying, please don't assault us. That's it. <laughs> so that's all you have to do is not assault us. There's nothing, there's nothing tricky here. <laughs> Pretty straightforward. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, we both have daughters, right? Mm-hmm. So we don't have sons, but talk about... If any of us in here have sons or little brothers or nephews or young boys in our life, what can we do? Oh, absolutely. To uh, raise them to know their feelings and to be vulnerable and to feel that it's okay to be rejected and to um, know what your feelings are. Many of my uh, sessions with couples um, in their middle age are uh, women bringing their husbands in because their husbands will not express emotions. And they don't know how to express emotions. And it's because they weren't raised to express emotions. So teaching young boys mm-hmm. how to feel. Um, and, and we look at the research between the way we, we raise boys and girls. Um, we use the language of feelings with girls that we don't use with boys. Mm-hmm. How are you feeling today? You know, and, and we don't do that with boys. We don't use feelings mm-hmm. language with boys. And so they don't learn it. So with my couples, you know, once I've convinced the male partner why it's important to uh, have feelings, uh, then he, he says, well, how? Right? So now I'm teaching a 50-year-old how to feel. Is it a teachable skill? It is. These are just skills. It is a teachable skill. Um, and one couple I work with, it was great. You know, he's, finally we got him to the point. He's like, I didn't know that, he says to his wife, I didn't know that you wanted to hear my inner world. I didn't know that I was supposed to share my feelings. And she's like, yes. And I'm like, yes. You know? <laughs> and then he started talking and he wouldn't shut up. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was great. A lot in there. Yeah. That's fantastic. <laughs> what else would you hope that we would do with the book? I mean, is it a book that you start and go through from start to finish? Is it a book that we should gift? 
Is it a book we should pick up and then put down? I mean, I, for me, it would be, I if I were the reader, first time yeah. reader, I would read through everything, mm-hmm. go back and work on some of the uh, some of the skills, you know, that sh- and as they show up. So, and one of them I, I think that would come up time and time again is the chapter on self care as an act of mm. resistance. Um, so, women are expected to be the caretakers of the world and to put everyone else uh, else's needs in front of our own. And um, you know, I I don't like the idea of prioritizing self care. You know, how do you how do you rank self care? And it's particularly if you're taking care of older relatives or special needs kids, et cetera, that doesn't, you can't really do that. But what would your life look like if you centered your self-care in your life? Um, and what do you need to do in order to uh, set that up for yourself? Mm-hmm. Uh, and oftentimes, and this is part of that chapter, it's setting boundaries, um, which means saying no, right? So boundaries are the limits that we place on ourselves and what we tell other people our limits are. Um, and for example, your time you know, your time limits. So being able to really set boundaries with other people, what your availability is and what your limits are. Mm-hmm. And I think boundaries uh, for women is one that we will go back to time and time again, myself included, by the way. Yeah, I mean, boundaries is a, <laughs> it's a, it's a trigger word for me because I have both issues with it. But I also know the research that says that when, so let's take office housework. Right. Oh, yes. Like talk about off. Women clean the refrigerator. Birthday cards, retirement cards, order the cake. Yeah. Order the food. All of the labor. All of the labor. And then you get your performance appraisal and they never ask you about the cakes that you ordered. And you don't get a one to five rating on the retirement parties. Yes. Don't clean the refrigerator. Don't clean the refrigerator. Don't sign up for it. But but we just can't help it. We can help it. (laughs) We absolutely can help it. I brought my own refrigerator into my office <laughs> See, these are good and I clean my own refrigerator. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So don't take on those tasks. You don't have to, you don't, you're not required to, it's not in your job description unless it is. Um, so y- you are the one that is making those decisions, right? Just say no. Just say no. Sit on your hands. That's what I tell my new mom, <laughs> my, you know, people in my life are new moms because yeah. that's the worst time to raise your hand, but you do. Yeah, and this came up uh, last night uh, when I was speaking last night uh, that no is a complete sentence. And um, also Mm. I shared that on my office computer, I have a post-it note with the word no written Mm. on it, just sitting right on my computer. So when I open up emails, because I'm a person that tends to overcommit. And, uh, and, you know, what happens at the begin- beginning of the semester, I don't, I'm just teaching, right? And then all of a sudden, everyone, you know, Joanne, can you do this? Can you do this? Can you show up here? And, and at first, I'm like, yes, yes, yes. And then in the middle of the semester, I'm like, oh, my God, I can't even grade. I have no time. So n- the no is a reminder. I am not, you know, I, I'm not required to say yes. Yeah. I love Shonda Rhimes, and she wrote that book, The Year of Saying Yes. And I'm like, no, it's The Year of Saying No. I love say you, no. but why did you do that? Um, but saying no gives you the space to say yes to the things that you want to do, yeah. right? Give yeah. me more energy. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. But so the research that 
concerns me is that if women do say no, they're seen as selfish. So if I say no to organizing the office party and I say, I think it might be your turn, it's seen as, whoa, okay. She's rude. She's selfish. Yeah. So, okay. You know, and that's how I would counsel a client, really. So, okay, you can't control the way other people see you. So either they're going to see you as the person responsible for doing the parties, or they might see you as selfish. But at the end of the day, what's going to make you happy? Yeah. You know, what's what's going to impact your life the, the most? Yeah. We have to, that's also part of the patriarchal messages that we're, you know, we're trying to change ourselves to be, to be pleasing, to be liked, you yeah. know, in this culture. And, and we don't need to be liked. Everyone does not need to like you. So that's a great one. I didn't have time to read it, but a headline came across today. Um, the value of raising rude girls. Mm-hmm. So I actually didn't read it, but text it to my girls. And then they texted back, what are you trying to say, mommy? And I'm like, shoot, I didn't actually <laughs> read it yet. But, but I, can you talk about the the difference between kind and nice or rude and nice or all these things that girls get steeped in being nice. Right. So you asked about, you know, boys and raising boys yeah. and for girls. My, my advice is not to, to, to raise girls to be nice. Um, you know, and, and, and of course we want to raise our children to have manners, right? That, that matters, but that girls, you know, your job, your role is not to be nice. Um, you can say no. Um, you can be angry. Um, you, you're, you, you don't have to be perfect. And those are issues that, that girls uh, really struggle with. Um, girls in school are, high, you know, overachievers and perfectionists. And this, you know, also shows up in the workplace where we yeah. feel like we can't make a mistake because no one will like us. Right. But it comes, uh, we can bring it back down to what we learned as, as young girls. It's, mm-hmm. it's okay. It's human to make mistakes. You learn from them. So it's interesting you talk about anger. I was in this investment banking meeting and one of the very senior women said, I'm just really tired of being called angry and mm-hmm. I should be CFO and I'm not CFO and blah, blah. And then another woman in my life who I won't say, cause it's being recorded said, you can't be angry. It's not an effective strategy. You just have to suck it up because mm. angry women don't get ahead. And, and they're both, well, one was older than the other. The one that said, don't ever show anger. And I just, as a quiet bystander, because I may or may not work for the older woman, I didn't know, <laughs> I didn't know what to say. Oh, yeah. I can see that's a tough situation. Um, but I think, you know, I think it if we're going to change the culture, we do need to see if we can speak yeah. up in those moments. Just a gentle pushback. Yeah. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't always mean a confrontation. Yeah. Right. How do you, you express know, your anger? You can, yeah, you can, you can just say, oh, I, I, I didn't find that to be angry. Or I, I thought that means impassioned or, yeah. you know, just some way of pushing back and saying, this is okay. But we kind of all have to do that. Yeah, I remember my father growing up said, you have two choices. You can be effective or you can be right. And he was basically telling me that I was double downing on being right. I see. <laughs> so I think about that, you know, and it's, I want to be effective because you're going to win more if you're That's true. effective. But sometimes fe- being angry feels, feels right. You know, and, and anger, um, it's, anger is a secondary emotion, right? Mm-hmm. Usually there's something underneath anger. Interesting. Um, unless it's around injustice. So anger is a emotion. It's an appropriate emotion yeah. when there's injustice. Um, so to to not be angry when there's injustice uh, that would be concerning. Inappropriate. Yes, yeah, exactly. That's inappropriate. Yeah, we're going to move to Q and A in a minute, but I'm going to ask you two more things. What was your favorite thing about writing this book? 
when I wrote about um, uh, body oppression and really learning about diet culture and how we're so influenced by messages to look a certain way um, and have a certain body, right, which is thin yet curvy. Uh, um, It's impossible body type, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And when I realized that even I had participated, you know, in in certain ways Mm -hmm. in diet culture, and I thought, well, that's ridiculous. So while I was writing that chapter, I actually started to bake cookies. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Wait, did you bring them? No, no, I ate them. So I thought, wow, you can dismantle the patriarchy by making and eating chocolate chip cookies. This is fantastic. That's awesome. (laughs) I want to hear the other behind the scenes writing, (laughs) writing techniques. This may be unfair and we didn't, I didn't pre-vet this, but what would be maybe your biggest fear about this book or worst case outcome? Oh, I, I didn't have one. Good. Then I'm not, I don't have any either. But I just, <laughs> yeah. You know, I just didn't know if you got any pushback. Actually, no. I really men haven't. or from different um, generations of women who maybe don't. Oh, actually, I will tell you a fear that I had because this does happen when I publish uh, in my blog, Feminist Writing, I do get some hate mail. Yeah, that's what um, I was And so I did, I, I was anticipating and still anticipate getting yeah. um, some hate mail. Um, I, I did, somebody did write, <laughs> some guy did write me an email and say, I really, I strongly disagree with your opinions. Um, I'm home all day today. Can you give me a call so we can discuss it? <laughs> Cause I'm just sitting around eating bonbons. Of course you're eating chocolate chip cookies. But yes, right. Exactly. <laughs> How would you, or, I mean, you wouldn't pick up the phone. I would definitely not. But if like, let's say a man in the audience said that right now. Not that, not to call him because that could mean a hundred things. But how might you respond to a man who says you're just angry? Well, he wasn't saying I was angry. He was uh, what he was saying. What what they what they do sometimes in ang- anger, but but their criticisms usually are, I can't believe you have a PhD because you're obviously not smart. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, I'm not even going to engage in that right. conversation. Right. Why would I? Why would I defend myself? Right? Why would I spend yeah. the energy yeah. on that? Yeah. But my favorite criticism was somebody who uh, a male wrote in response to my blog: "Who do you think you are, the Lord Overseer of all things?" And I thought, "Yes, that's a great title. <laughs> that's exactly so who I, I think told I my am. husband and daughter. I am now the Lord Overseer of all things. <laughs> Put it on your card. Exactly. I love that. Yeah. Um, I think we'll move to." Questions um, for Joanne. I don't have to answer any, so they're all to <laughs> Joanne. Good. Hi, thank you sure. for this. Um, I'm a proud second wave <laughs> intersectional feminist. Great. And uh, I started working with women in business and professional development in the late 1970s, early 1980s, when women first started coming into the workforce. So I'm a clinical psychologist by Mm -hmm. training, and I started executive coaching and professional development in the late 1970s. I'm curious to what you're discovering right now about ageism gendered ageism in the workplace. And since you're working with couples in their 50s, um, how do you work with that in the context of of male-female relationships? Ageism and in male-female relationships. Right. Um, So it's, it comes up, I've worked recently with a with a couple who's actually a little older than 50. And um, 
what they were dealing with is the long the the way that sexism showed up and was acceptable years ago in their marriage that isn't acceptable mm. anymore. And give us more dirt. What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so in in this particular case, um, there was some acceptable. Uh, I, I, I got to be careful in, I know. in how I answer. Okay, so um, some some infidelity, some okay. um, drinking and bar hopping mm-hmm. and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, gender terms, you know, um, checking out other women in front of your partner. Those those sorts of things that that probably weren't really pushed back about, you know, in their situation right. when they were younger. Um, but today. It's not, it, it, we've moved on, right? That's the, those sort of obvious sexism is not acceptable. And sh- she wanted him to catch up, you know? And that's how it shows up often, you know, where um, he, he is uh, lagging behind a little bit, yeah. you know, the older gentleman, perhaps. So uh, working with him and, and, and what helps is empathy. So for her to share, you know, when you act this way, when you are commenting on how other women dress, this is how it makes me feel. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really get in to say, well, that's sexist. Well, okay. You know, but for him to really connect um, how, how painful it is for her, um, that motivates him to change. Um, similarly along age lines, there was, I'm going to forget all the details of this, but it was the ousted host of the radio show Q, and he was allowed to do this apologia in the Paris Review, maybe. I forget I forget exactly where it was published. And when the editor-in-chief was interviewed about it and asked, well, was there any, you know, differences of opinion on your staff? You know, was it the women who opposed it? And he said, oh, no, but, but the younger members of my staff mm. were opposed to it. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you see as a generational mm. yeah, for, is this divide. The, is this or, the person in Canada? Is this? Yeah. Okay. I, I, I can't yeah. remember his name, but I, I do know what you're talking about. Um, you know, there's, it's interesting. I do see, uh, some generational divide. I do see, um, younger people, particularly, uh, my students who are kind of like, what, what is this? I don't, I don't get this. We, you know, we don't act this way, but there's also some research that indicates that, um, young people are actually pretty set in their gender roles. So I don't, you know, I'm not sure how that's going to play out. Um, but I think it may not be the young people speaking out may not be so much about gender roles as much as it is that they've been raised. That it's okay to speak out mm. about anything, about anything. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome to my day job. <laughs> you too. Yes, exactly. Actually my night job too. <laughs> With your girls. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, thank you. My name is Sharon and um, thanks for your expertise and for sharing today. I have a question. Um, I think that white people specifically are taught a lot of ways in which they are to behave. And one of the ways in which we are toward that is our individualization, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so a lot of what you've been talking about tonight is about the individual mm-hmm. standing up and intervening mm-hmm. as an ally yeah. Mm-hmm. and standing up and calling out people. And that is completely against white culture. So I'm wondering if you have some tips on how we could maybe do more collective practice 
Because I think as a woman who stands up as an ally all the time, it's really hard to be in a situation where you are calling out people, even if you're doing it in a nice, polite way, because people will shut you down and do all the things like you said, oh, don't worry about not being liked. But actually, white culture teaches you incredibly well that that is one of the predominant things that you need to be. So I sort of think that it has to get beyond the individual and get more to the collective. And I wonder if you have some kind of words of wisdom for us about that. I do. I think it's really important to be involved in some kind of group, right? And so that's also part of the mission of the book is to get people involved. So whatever it is that you're, you know, you're interested in, um, that is important to you to change, to become involved in an organization, mm-hmm. or to have something less inf- um, formal, some kind of community care. Uh, getting involved in groups where you can um, share about these experiences, even if it's at your workplace. I mean, I don't know, it doesn't work everywhere, but certainly at a college, we, you, you probably have that too, yeah, yeah. You know, where we have you know, white privilege groups or something where we're working on it together. So mm-hmm. we're working together. So and I, I even say this to my clients, if what you're looking for doesn't exist, start it. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. I work in sales in uh, my business, and I couldn't get anything done without all the women that support me. <laughs> and uh, they're just amazing. But I talk to them and I say, you know, you could really move up in this company. We really need you to. And almost all of them say, no, I just like what I do. I don't want to move up. Mm-hmm. Are they telling me the truth or is there something else going That's on? That's a great question. I would send them uh, a survey. <laughs> honestly, that's what I would do. I would survey them and, and have them uh, answer questions honestly, you know, anonymously. Like what mm-hmm. kind of question? Um, I would ask them about their job satisfaction, their job goals, um, work-life balance. Um, it may be that their schedule works for them, and that's why they don't want to move up. I think a lot of them. And, and that, that might be it. Mm-hmm. They, they might very well want a, uh, a higher position, but, um, but the structure of the business mm-hmm. won't allow that. And so finding that out would be important. Yeah. That's, that's good. Yeah. I think that whole, what, what would it take? What would it take for us to get you to move up? That's a great question. Really? Because mm-hmm. often it's like very tiny. Yeah. I want to. I want to go to my daughter's rugby match at yeah, no, four they have, o'clock. They have really silly excuses. Yeah, a right. Lot of times, but and but so they just. Not, it's just they interesting aren't to me that you know. I said, "Heck, you could do my job." I mean, <laughs> yeah. I don't know what I do without you, but yeah. But they just don't seem to want to uh, really move up. Like, been probably getting a of. lot of messaging that they. I, yeah, I would. Yeah, I would definitely want to ask those questions anonymously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for this. This has been. Uh, wonderful, and I and this is related to the woman's question previously about the discussion about being liked. Mm. Because while I am very inspired by the possibility that it is as simple as saying, "Sure, you don't like me, I'm not going <laughs> to do the office work or housework. I'm not going to do those things." The reality is that the a lot of the present research would suggest that for women to continue to advance, it's actually not optional to be liked. Mm-hmm. And to so not not, yeah. I'm curious to be not liked. Thank you. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious how you square that sort of ideal notion with the realities of women in the workforce today and whether it's strategies or sort of suggestions about how you, how you think about marrying those two for, for the present reality. I, I love the notion of being yes. able to shrug yeah, my shoulder. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
certainly none of us live, you know, I, I don't go to work and act like I don't care what you, you, know, <laughs> what you think of me. Um, um, so, you know, I, I think that's unrealistic. I, I get what you're saying. What, you know, but if you're getting caught up, I would want to say, what's the bare, what's the minimum that you need to do? Like, like really, are you over, where are you overdoing it that you don't need to overdo it? You know, coming back to if you're the one that's always signing up for the extra things, I'm sure that you can scale back, you know, and still do the minimum so that, you know, you're, you're playing part of that culture, mm-hmm. but you don't have to do it all. Yeah. Right. So, you know, play the game, but not, don't, don't put it all in there. Save some of that for yourself. Yeah. I like to do the rotating scale. So I did it in May. Let's yeah, move the rest of the box exactly. <laughs> and then just, you know, yeah. with a smile. Yeah. You have to. Thank you. <laughs> So I'm a VP at my company, and I find myself in a role of mentor fairly regularly. I worry about uh, continuing some of, the, some of the gender biases. Niceness is one way, but also in trying to be a powerful leader. Uh, there's very few women in my field. And trying to help coach women in power and influence dynamics. But I, I like to think that as the youngsters are coming up, that things are getting better, and I don't want to propagate some of the, the gender stereotypes that may exist, but still arm, especially the younger women, that here's some of the ways that we can use power and influence to our advantage. Trying to find that balance I find very difficult. Can you give me a concrete example or of what you're talking about? Like, uh, just how to how to lead meetings, how to influence people to our way of thinking, subtle tactics, because we do need to find that line of likability, but still uh, holding our ground. And just, I mean, a lot of it's typical leadership techniques, right? Coming, you know, coming in from how people are uh, coming to that conversation, what influences them, what where are they coming from, but using these kind of subtler techniques, I don't find myself going through those conversations as much with young men. Uh, as I do with young women, as they're trying to figure out how to move things forward in a positive way. Right. So how, so, so make sure that I hear, hear what you're saying. So young women coming in, trying to express their leadership and influence and doing mm-hmm. it in like very stereotypical feminine ways. Is that yeah, how they I mean, think they should do it? Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly like the Lucy approach from Charlie Brown. Um, I, I wish we could all do that. Yeah. But <laughs> that pull, the, pull the football out. Yes. I, you know, I, maybe not pulling the football, but you know, Lucy would certainly be one of my heroes. When I think about women leaders, I always thought of Lucy as one of my favorites because she was unapologetic about it. Yeah. However, when I started my career, doing it the way Lucy does doesn't doesn't didn't get me far at the time. And yeah. being subtler about these tactics mm-hmm. have certainly gotten me to the VP role that I now have. But I've I've given up certain things that I, I might have wanted that I see male leaders be able to do. I don't want to propagate some of these things if things are getting better. Mm-hmm. So so trying to have direct conversations with them about yeah. And so how do they respond? I think it's generally successful. I just don't want to continue to propagate gender issues if things are getting better. Yeah. Um, so if they're, I, I think I would ask them, like, how, how is it feeling, right? Yeah. Again, like, how are you, um, how, how do you feel about your leadership style? Do you feel it's effective? Mm-hmm. So, so have them do their own self-reflection yeah. 
Um, I mean, I have to do that as a professor, right? So uh, writing up my own evaluation of myself. So mm-hmm. doing that, really, and seeing where maybe encouraging them to, to look in areas so that might be vulnerable or weak, weaknesses for, for them. Yeah. yeah, I continually hope things get better. But <laughs> <laughs> speaking of that, I forgot I had a big question here <laughs> because it's Wednesday and we know what yesterday was. And you talk about dismantling the patriarchy. Yes. It doesn't appear that <laughs> that's happening. I mean, it. watching two older white men duke it out. I know. I, I, it's, it's so infuriating about yeah. Warren, particularly. Um, I, it just feels very gendered to me. I, yeah. I, I don't know what to say, really, about it, yeah. because it's so upsetting. Uh, she's qualified. She's yeah. energetic, healthy. <laughs> she has a plan for everything yeah um she a, should, a, that would actually is reasonable yeah we can fund it yeah yeah actually, yeah yeah um but it does feel very much like the democratic establishment has pushed biden mm-hmm. pushing him yeah so are we moving farther from dismantling the patriarchy um you just know, today. You don't just, have to answer for, like, you don't have to pr- pr- prognosticate for the future, but what I don't about know. today? Uh, it feels, these are, these are the moments where it feels yeah. that way. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's and like, I think it's, it's important to say that because it, 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 I think that we, you know, all women feel like, well, it's infuriating and, and it yeah. hurts too. Mm-hmm. Like what's going on? So I know you're really into practical asks. What could each of us, what are, I'm not going to hold you to it, but what are, what are three things that each of us could do as we leave here, as we go out back out into the patriarchal <laughs> world, or um, just what are some things? They don't have to be ground, you know, earth yeah, shattering. Actually, just summarizing what we talked about. So being a bystander for, you know, for everyone, being, you know, activating your role as a bystander mm. is number one. Um, also, um, Working on your own or being aware of your own implicit biases, yeah. right? And how they come up and how they show up. Your own, even if it's your female and your own internalized sexism. Mm-hmm. And also getting involved in a community um, and ensuring when, when you do, if you are um, working with an issue that's important to you, that marginalized groups are being protected in that issue. And you're not just uh, working for your own individual uh, rights. And then... Along with that, for the women in particular, so every time I, almost every time I'm in a room with just women, they will tell me, somebody will say it, and then everybody will be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> they all have these horror stories, we, of other women who weren't supportive of us. Mm. And so here's how it goes down. I would rather work for a man than a woman because, and then everybody gloms on with like, and this happened and that happened. And I don't know what to say other than just please don't let somebody come in next year and talk about you in my class. Don't be that woman. But what do you, I think it's great leadership to intervene and say, Hey, but wait a minute, we're women. Yeah. Right. And bringing up that Audrey Gelman article. Oh yeah. We were talking so, about the wing. Yeah. So the, I don't know if, if anyone else has seen it mm-hmm. um, or is familiar with the wing, but um, it's a women owned feminist co-working space. And there's one newly opened in San Francisco. I'm a member in DC and um, it was, they meant to create a real, I'm sorry, I'm losing my voice, <clears throat> a diverse, inclusive space for women. And some of the um, members had been um, committing microaggressions against the women of color who worked for the wing. And it wasn't handled appropriately by the staff. Yeah. 
So they did a whole bunch of trainings and everything. But she released a statement uh, where she reflected on the mistakes that she made by starting this new venture and um, was really transparent about it and acknowledged that, you know, this company grew so fast and it went to, you know, they made all these mistakes and these are all the things they're going to do. And it was just so beautiful and authentic and transparent. And that is what female leadership looks like. Yeah. Right. A collaboration, transparent um, and not hiding and trying to maintain power um, and, and an image of power instead of saying, I messed up. And we're going to fix it. Here's and what, we learned. what we're going to do. Yeah. Um, and and it was really validating to all the members. And, you know, we all felt like, wow, we're proud to be members of the space. Because we all mess up. Yeah. yeah. So when you're hearing people talk about, I would rather work for a man, <clears throat> you know, I would think about this sort of situation. Well, well why? This is a beautiful example of yeah. female leadership. And why don't, why wouldn't we want that? So be the person that speaks up and brings that up. Yeah, it was, it was, it was not that the, we had gotten used to the apology of, I'm sorry, I made you feel uncomfortable. Or I'm sorry. I no, sorry, sorry, you felt uncomfortable. Yeah. Sorry. We fired those employees. It's fixed now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was. But it's a, it's a workplace culture issue. Yeah. yeah. Do we have any other questions that somebody give her a hardball? Come on. She has family members. This is your chance. <laughs> give her a, do it. <laughs> a hard question. Any other. Oh, right. Here it is. Ah. Pull it, pull the mitt back. I don't know if it's a hard question, but um, when people do mess up and I see I just anecdotally, you'll see men that, you know, got caught for saying something inappropriate, whatever. They kind of take a little rest for a while and they come back and they're like, OK, I'm here. Yeah. And, and I don't think it's specific to men. I think we probably all do that. Yeah, we, totally. We, but I think that's a very prominent example lately. But um, it, it, can you speak a little bit more about I, I guess I just wish there was a way that was accepted more to say, like, this is what I did wrong. This is what I've learned. This is who I've talked to. And here's yeah, what and, to change. And can you just talk about that sort of apology. A path. And, yeah, and a path an to actual how I'm changing. Yeah. I think that we need to, like, write a statement up on how to apologize. I, I was going to wait. <laughs> Give us. That's, so how to apologize is yeah. you, uh, first of all, I'm not actually a big fan of apologies, especially if it's not followed by behavioral change. Mm-hmm. Because just saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, over again without doing anything mm-hmm. different is nothing. But to actually say, and Audrey Gelman did this mm-hmm. in her uh, op-ed, it was or blog. I'm not sure what it was, but um, to to actually it was say, an op-ed. Yeah. I made this mistake. I did this. I apologize for the harm it cost, and these are all the things I'm going to do to fix it. Mm-hmm. That's an apology. It doesn't have to be more than that. But to say I misspoke you were confused, you know, or this, per, this, you know, all the gaslighting and all these things that mm-hmm. happened. But to just take responsibility for it. We have more. <laughs> Go ahead, please. Yeah. Can you comment on why do you think that's so hard for us to do as a, mm-hmm. as a culture? Like, is that... Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't, yeah, like we don't. T- we don't want to admit we're wrong. We don't want to like, admit we're wrong or admit that we made a mistake. Um, but it's so important at every level, even as you know, parents to admit you know we made you know like I, 
if I overreact to my daughter, I would come back and say, I'm really sorry I acted that way or something, right? It's mm-hmm. like super important. Mm-hmm. Um, as professors, you know, I'm sorry, uh, I'm always making mistakes in my syllabus. I never get the dates right. So I, I, ju- I don't blame it on the students. I say, I'm really sorry. That was confusing. Let, I'm going to fix it in this way to your benefit. Yeah. And you're going to be happy about it, right? So, and then they trust me, right? So, and that's a big part of transparency and trust. But yeah, I think we're just afraid to admit that we're wrong. And then there are the lawyers who tell you don't admit you're wrong. Like I hear that a lot in the company, in the corporate world. Yeah. You cannot admit you're Ugh. wrong. So I think lawyers, sorry if there are any lawyers in here. Yeah, I'm married to a lawyer actually, <laughs> but he didn't come. So it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> we can talk about him. Yeah. Um, so my question is, what advice would you give to large corporations or companies who don't have a lot of um, diversity in leadership? And so this comes up at my company a lot. And you're sitting and looking at the mantle, and it's and it's not diverse at all. And you ask the CEO, "What are we doing for to increase gender and diversity in our leadership positions?" And the response is, "You know, well, first off, we're gender blind. Second oh. off, <laughs> second off, vomit. We're, we're looking at you know." Our succession planning and level below and level below that and making sure that, you know, we've got more diversity there. And that's sort of the that's the response. What do you say in return? Here are the key things that we think this, you know, Fortune 10 company needs to do or enact to make change now. Um, So I'm not a big fan of the lean in book, by the way. But they, that organization has conducted really solid research mm-hmm. about how mm-hmm. to make workplaces more inclusive. Um, and I would bring that in because it, it mm-hmm. gives you a guide on how to do it and how other companies do it. And bringing more women on board means the company is going to make more money. Yeah. You know, so if you bring it to their bottom line and show them how to do it, and you could just research a lean in um, uh, research uh, there. I think the research 2019 is, is the most recent. It's solid. It's really good research. So women in the work, them. women in the workplace with McKinsey yeah. and lean in. Yeah. Great. They have great strategies. So I'm so honored to have all of you in the audience today. And I want to invite one more question. Perfect. We'll have the last question. I'm glad you you leaned into that. That was good. But I I know all of you have wonderful things to offer. So thank you for being here tonight. Mm -hmm. So my question is, what do I say to my anti-feminist mother who thought that Christine (laughs) Ford had it coming and people like her deserve it? First of all, I just want to empathize with you and say I'm sorry. Like, genuinely, it's hard. It's really hard. Yes. Um, you know, I would, I would give up trying to change her, and I would just say I don't see it that way, and it pains me. It pains me that you feel this way. Um, we can't change other people. We really can't mm-hmm. as much as we like to. Um, <laughs> but you can change the way you respond to her, um, and that's probably going to have, have more benefit for you. So I would give up trying to get her mm-hmm. to feel empathic uh, for Christine Blasey Ford and just continue to say, I don't see it that way. And it hurts me that you do. Thank you. You're Love welcome. That. Simple. Let us know how that goes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ongoing. <laughs> to be continued. So again, I want to thank Joanne and Kelly for their comments here today. I want to thank the audience that's here at the club and also our radio audience. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, celebrating over 100 years of enlightened discussion, is adjourned. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.